Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Now it's time to honor our keynote speaker, General Keith Alexander. General Alexander, founder, chairman, co-CEO of IronNet Cybersecurity, is one of the foremost authorities on cybersecurity in the world. A four-star Army general, General Alexander was previously the highest-ranked military official of U.S. Cybercom NSA CSS, where he led these DOD agencies during the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq when attempted cyber attacks against the U.S. were on the rise. In recognition of cyber's increasing importance, President Barack Obama and Defense Secretary Robert Gates appointed General Alexander as the first commander of U.S. Cybercom, a newly created military institution charged with defending the nation's security in cyberspace against sophisticated cyber threats to business and government operations in an increasingly interconnected world. A leader with vision and a pragmatic approach to tackling the ever-changing cyber threat landscape, General Alexander built IronNet to bring this knowledge and his experience to the private sector and fill the critical gap between cyber threats and available security technology. IronNet provides best-in-class cyber defense based on complex behavioral modeling, big data analytics, and advancing advanced uh, computing ability. Now, in addition to holding a Fender guitar on occasion, General Alexander holds a BS from the U.S. Military Academy, an MS in Business Administration from Boston University, and MS degrees in Systems Technology, Physics, and National Security Strategy. IWP President Dr. James Anderson will present an honorary doctorate to General Alexander. So it is a, a great honor on behalf of the Board of Trustees and the faculty of the Institute of the World Politics to bestow this honorary degree upon an American patriot for your great service in so many different capacities. The hood, please. Please join me in a round of applause for Keith Alexander. Thank, let's get the, let's get the, the we're going to give you your diploma now. But wait, there's more. In addition to the honorary hood, we have a diploma for Keith Alexander. We, okay, okay. James? Thank 
What they were just saying is that the reason I got this is that the only person that could speak here had to be a doctor. So we had to fix that really quick. So doctor, <laughs> doctor, doctor. What a, what a great honor and privilege it is to be here. You know, I, I was invited up by uh, one of my good friends, Sean Smith, but I had the opportunity and the privilege to talk to Dr. Linchowski about what this school is, what it means. And so I'm gonna to try to talk to that tonight from my perspective, really for the students and the faculty and those that support it. Because I think getting the elements of national power for our country and what we're about to face is important. I spent 40 years in the military. My father-in-law said because I couldn't get a job on the outside. <laughs> but the reality was it was an honor and privilege to serve in our intelligence community and with our military. It really was. It was the greatest privilege of my lifetime. And we got to do, I got to do things that I would never have thought possible, Marianne, when I was back in uh, Syracuse, New York. And Debbie and I have known each other now 54 years. I know, we look only 60, thank you. <laughs> and when I think about it, what I've learned over the years and the opportunity to serve um, at the National Security Agency under Bush for almost five years and under Obama for five years, and the things I got to see highlight the importance of what you do here at this school. I want to start at the end here, what I think is going to happen, and then I'm going to bring back in the school. It's interesting, Dr. or now Jim Savridis, Admiral Dr. Jim Savridis, who I'm sure you worked with, well, he was the uh, executive assistant to Secretary Rumsfeld, wrote a book recently called 2034. It's about a war with China. And in that, he posits this war with China and recently made the statement that they put 2034, but he thinks it's too far out. I'll tell you, if you look at what happened over the last several months, including to uh, March of this year and to July and March, the Chinese made a $400 billion deal with the Iranians for natural resources, and they're gonna provide aid, military, and other aid to Iran. It's a huge step forward in the Middle East, and I think it will destabilize the Middle East. And in 2 July, at their 100th anniversary, made the statement that we will bash heads and bloodshed for those that oppose us, aim directly at this country. It's his intent, if you look at when he started in China in 2012 as, this, as the head, he was convinced that they were actually humiliated in World War II, and that will never happen again. That's the first thing he said. This will never happen again. And the second thing is Taiwan. It's part of China. And he's going to make that part of China. And you're seeing that play out. And nobody wants a war with China, least of those least of us that were in the military. We don't want a war with China. Yet I see it just coming towards us as a nation. 
And so in that discussion that we had with Dr. Lenchowski that I had, when you look at what we consider in terms of the elements of national power, oftentimes we look right to the military. Let's assume that the war is going to take place 10 years from now, not 13. What happens between now and then? And what can we do to prevent a war? You know, it doesn't start with a war. It starts with intelligence gathering. It starts with actions like what you've seen. It starts with alliances, Iran, China, and others. It starts, in this case, in my mind, in cyber. I believe cyber is where this really will play out. And actually, Stavridis puts that in his book as the first element. And one of the things that I learned in the military is that if you win the recon war, you're in much better shape. And I'm sure you saw the same thing. I was in the first desert storm. We took apart their reconnaissance. They didn't know what was going on. In the war with China, I believe one of the things that we're going to have to do is win the cyber war. We're not winning it today. We are way behind. And the way we've approached it is not correct. We've told them, please don't steal our intellectual property. Please don't do this. And they've said, we won't do that, and we won't do that. And they're stealing the intellectual property, and I believe are positioning themselves to take over Taiwan. So if we want to stop it, we have to stop it there. We have to get out in front. So one of the things that I think about when you want to stop this war, we've got to win the cyber war, and we've got to think about what are the different steps that they would take, and how do we get them to stop before it comes to a physical war? A physical war with China would be a disaster for all of mankind. Yet we are headed towards that. So one of the things that this institute does is gets the young people that are going to be the futures in our National Security Council in the Defense Department, like you heard up here, they're the ones who are going to argue these steps that we have to win, what we as a nation can and must do to win and stop a war with China and not allow China to engage further in the South China Sea and in Taiwan. That's a huge problem. There are those that say, give them Taiwan. I think that would be worth the debate here in the classes to say, what happens once they get Taiwan? What's next? And when you think about it, that's the problem. And I'll tell you that if a war with China comes, think about what else is going to happen. Russia. You can see all that's going on in cyber with Russia today, what they did in Crimea, what they want to do in eastern Ukraine, in the Baltic states and others. If they have that opportunity, which a war in China would offer, they would take back what they could, and there's not much we could do on both those fronts. 
we have to stop it before it goes to a war. So it is really satisfying to me knowing, John, that what you're doing here is helping to build the leaders of tomorrow to know what the elements of national power are. You know, I had a chance and I saw Randy uh, Fort and some of the friends. We sat in a number of meetings at the National Security Council. I can't go over all of it because they shoot me, uh, but <laughs> that's what I've been told. But it's interesting to see how those debates go and how much better off we'd be if we had that level of education on everything that we're doing. I thought I would end up, well, this is all the good news. Remember, I'm an intel person. <clears throat> I want to give you all the good news first. I do think when you look at it, our nation is the best at cyber. And there's people out there, I saw somebody uh, leave the Defense Department saying, hey, we're way behind. Let me tell you what. I ran Cyber Command. We're the best in the world. No doubt about it. That's the good news. The bad news. We're not good enough. We've got to get better. And we've got to figure out how to use that as an element of national power. Because I believe that's coming our way. I'm supposed to take some questions, but before I take questions, I wanted to give you a thought because uh, with General Anderson, Dr. Anderson, um, I also served under Secretary Rumsfeld. He was great to me. He appointed me to NSA. Um, and it was amazing, and we have so many stories. Uh, you got to have a sense of humor. But the story I want to give you is I had a chance to meet with President Bush and President Obama a lot. I want to give you some thoughts on leadership and what impressed me the most about leadership. You see, I had been in a meeting with Secretary Rumsfeld where I made fun a little bit I found out you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> I actually asked him, would a 10% improvement in this area be good? And he started thinking, he said, yeah, that'd be good. I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Secretary, I meant 10 times. He got bright red, the color, that red. I thought, he's going to kill me. <laughs> so I quickly went through what it was, and I lived to, say, to save the day. And Admiral Jim Stavridis, who was there behind me, he said, you're crazy. I said, yeah, but it was funny, right? And he said, you're crazy. <laughs> so that Monday, um, I, that Friday, the next day, I get a call from Secretary Rumsfeld, and I thought he's still mad. I'll use that word. <laughs> and um, he said, uh, "I thought, uh oh." Well, he called up and said, "You know that brief you gave me? Meet me in the Oval Office Monday at at ten hundred. I want you to brief the president." So the nice part about being the director of NSA, you can drive right up to the White House, get out, and you go up. And so I briefed the president. It was a great briefing. He nodded. I thought, well, I'm a military guy. You nodded me. That's good to go. We're already attacking. We're good. <laughs> uh, he came up to NSA, the president, six months later. And I had asked the, the Secret Service guy, I said, so do I ride with the president or do I ride my car? And the Secret Service guy goes, General? The president tells you to get in his car, get in his car. If he doesn't, get in your car. <laughs> That's pretty easy. I think I can do that. So the helicopter comes in. I go, welcome to Fort Meade, Mr. President. Get in the car, General. We got to talk. <laughs> and he went flying in the car. I look and I thought, wow, he's really fast. 
So I get in his sedan. He's in the jump seat. I'm in his seat. There are no photographers. I thought, this isn't right. I need a picture. Somebody take a picture. <laughs> and he goes, General, we got two problems we're going to talk about. First, they tell me you got too many bosses. I thought, danger, Will Robinson. <laughs> I have the president, the vice president, Secretary Rumsfeld, Cam Bone, the chairman, Stratcom, and the director of national intelligence. I have seven bosses. And they actually were all good to me. And so I told the president, I looked him right in the eye, I said, Mr. President, they're all good to me. They, they were right. He said, well, if that's ever a problem, we'll solve it right away. I should have said, which one? <laughs> I just want to know, who's on, the, who's on the short list? And then he said, uh, so this was the time of the terrorist surveillance program, and things were getting really bad. And he goes, Jim, it's going to get really bad. Here's the deal. You defend the country, I'll take the heat. And he did every step of the way. He went and stood up in front of the press, and he said, this is my program. This is President Bush's program to defend this country against terrorist attacks. And he took the heat. He never wavered. He never said it could be NSA or it could be somebody else. It was his. That was the greatest act of leadership. He got beat up in the press by it, but he did the right thing. So for you students that are going to be in future leadership positions, you're responsible. Take accountability. And I'll tell you, several years later, when that same story broke again, ironically, on the Snowden stuff, and people said, what are you doing? I had the chance to stand up in front of the people at NSA and said, you defend the country, I'll take the heat. That's what President Bush told us, and that's what I'll tell you. Greatest act of leadership that I've ever seen. So with that, if we have time for questions. So I'm going to ask those of you who are interested, there are, there are pieces of paper on your table. If you'd like General Alexander to answer a question, please write it down and bring it forward, and he'll answer it like the, what was the mighty Creston? Crespin. Uh, in the meantime, while you do that, General Alexander, do you have a story that we should know besides that one? Something that would be humorous that we don't know? A humorous story, yes. So, so the rest of the story. Um, so on that, when President Bush, we were in his office, what he asked me to brief him on is what we're going to do for the future intelligence system that NSA runs. And so I told him that. He nodded. I thought, well, he's approved it. We went back and we started building it. That same trip, um, we went to the NSA Threat Operations Center. Now, President Bush was amazing to work with. He was really good with people. He'd put them at ease. And you could see that I wanted all our people to brief him. I'd talked to him enough. So the intent was all the young people that we had would brief them. And I said, Mr. President, the first thing we're going to brief you on is that program we discussed in your office six months ago. And he goes, General, when are we going to get started? I said, well, Mr. President, when you nodded in your office, we started. 
we're done. And he said, hey, Dick, you hear that? They're already done. I didn't even know they started. <laughs> and now, it was kind of funny because the guy who was going to brief him, the real irony, was just nervous and could hardly talk. He put him so much at ease that he could give him that talk. And he did that with all the people he went with. It was so good. So he was a lot of fun. He had a great sense of humor and a privilege and honor to serve with him. Question number one. Right, they're still, they're still working our way up. Oh, here we go. Thank you. Thank you. It's not addressed to Doc. These are all phone numbers. <laughs> Ladies. Okay, so question number one. You don't look any smarter in that outfit. That's not a question, that's a statement. <clears throat> How is Israel's cybersecurity capabilities? Good. Um, so the Israelis are good. I think they're great to work with. They have some tremendous capabilities. It's a problem of scale and size for them. I'll tell you what I really worry about. There was a Twitter and uh, a tweet, I guess it's called, about a week ago, last Tuesday, where the Israeli finance minister said a war with Iran is inevitable and it will be sooner rather than later. China made that $400 billion deal with Iran. If a war starts there, this is a huge problem for all of us. So I worry about that. Does the NSA collect data on American citizens and store that data? You know, I got this question so many times. Do we read your emails and listen to your phone calls? And I had my relatives ask me that, and so I'll tell you what I told them. I said, when you call me, I don't listen to you. What makes you think I'm going to listen to you when you don't call me? So, but, but there's actually, this is a, uh, gets you to the story I guess you'd like to hear about um, the Snowden stuff. I was, we had the Presidential Commission come and review NSA. One of the people on that board was a board member of the ACLU. And when I told the White House, you've got to be kidding me, <laughs> that you're gonna have a board member of the ACLU on this panel when they're suing us. And they said the president has decided. So they came up there, this guy, is sitting at the, we had big tables at NSA, so he's about where Dr. Lenchowski is, and he had his arms crossed like this, and he looked at me like Darth Vader. <sighs> Luke. And he thought I was the bad guy. And so I told him, I said, look, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna let you see everything we've done, everything we've collected you'll get to review over the next five weeks, and to show you that you're getting the truth the young people that run this program will walk you through and answer every question you have. Five weeks later, we came back in, and that guy came up and started walking around the table real quick, and I thought, my protection unit's not here, but I think I can take him. I'm in pretty good shape. I can. <laughs> he came up, and you know how some people start shaking your arm? He started shaking my arm like that, and he goes, you and your people have the greatest integrity of any government agency I've seen. I said, surprise. 
I said, don't tell me, tell the president, tell Congress, tell the American people, and tell the people of NSA. And he said, I will, and he did. That's Dr. Jeffrey Stone. And what he saw was, we're not collecting data on you. We're not going after and reading your emails. We're going after terrorists. Now, if you're talking to a terrorist, <laughs> we probably will collect your information along with the terrorists. So I suspect that the person who wrote this, I think is not, you're not, are you talking? Okay, so we're good. John Doe. All right. Uh, here's a question incorporating your current position. So you've mentioned uh, in part that the responsibility, it's responsibility of the U.S. government to protect against threats foreign and domestic. But within cyber, can you talk a little bit about the public-private partnership that's unique to cyber? That's a great question. So how do we solve this problem? And it's a two-part problem. The issue that we have with cyber, if you think of every table here being a network, today every company defends itself. In my discussion with Dr. Lenchowski, we talked about the Federalist Papers. Now, I'm an Army officer. You know I can barely read, but I did get those. <laughs> and the intent was, what did our forefathers do to get the country to work together? What did they do to build this country? And when you look at what we do in cyber, every company defends itself. And when it's attacked and they understand it, they share. You're the nation. The government can't see attacks on you. And therein lies the problem. So what we need to do and what we're trying to do is, what if we all work together, shared information at network speed, and created a radar picture for cyber? And shared that with the government in an anonymized way to say the energy sector, the finance sector, the defense industrial base, where this part of government is being hit. That's what we need to do in cyber. And that's what I saw running Cyber Command. When Secretary Gates said, how do we defend the nation? I said, we can't defend the nation because we can't see it. We have to fix that problem. Now, the issues with Snowden and other things got people thinking, well, you're, you're reading our emails. So I think now it's the private sector's responsibility to build that radar picture and share it with the government. We can do this. That's how we stop China from stealing our intellectual property. That's how we stop Russia from all these attacks. It's by working together. We learned that almost 250 years ago in putting this country together, and that's the rules that we got to put for cyber. All right. How do you see the evolution of Cybercom given world events, ransomware, attacks growing, uh, the creation of the Office of the National Cyber Director um, and the influence of CISA, et cetera. Can you, about the way we've gone as a government lately, are okay, these so, going to be effective? So I'm really impressed with the team this administration has put together. Chris English was my deputy for seven years. He's now the National Cyber Director. Jen Easterly, uh, I think we've worked, I've met Jen Easterly in 1995. I was seven at the time. And I'm pretty sure my math may be off. And uh, she's one of the smartest people I've ever met. 
Paul Nakasone was my exec. He now runs Cyber Command and NSA. We hired Ann Newberger. She's at the National Security Council when I was at NSA. It is a great team. These are some of the smartest people in the world. I was asked, don't you think it looks bad that they all work for you? And I said, these are great people. We should be proud that they all offered to serve again, independent of party politics. These are people who came in, and you know, Jen Easterly was the exec for Condoleezza Rice. So when you think about it, these are great Americans. I think that speaks great. So what does that mean? Where does this go? I think Cyber Command, what we told Secretary Gates when I was sitting up, we can't go right to a combatant command. That will fail. So we did a subunified command under STRATCOM. Then we did a combatant command, and now it'll be a command like SOCOM with special capabilities. The question in the future is do we set up a special uh, separate department? Secretary Gates and others looked at this. We argued over it. We thought we, a combatant command was probably where it should end up. Ann Sheedy asks a question, and I want to raise it because of who our audience is. We have a lot of graduate students in the, off, in the audience who would like to be employed either in government or the private sector. I know you and I have had this conversation on a few occasions. How does the government compete with the private sector uh, to get people of the intellectual, with the intellectual capital to make a difference, whether it's IronNet or Cybercom? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh one of the issues that we wrestled with, but I'll tell you, I stayed at 40 years. It was an honor and privilege, and everybody said, you get, you're making the big bucks. I found out when I got out, we weren't making the big bucks. I said, wow. You know, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the four stars are capped at 180 k a year. And everybody else is less. Thank you for your service and what you're doing. I'll tell you, though, there are things that you can do for our country in the military and government that you can't do in private life. I would do it all over again. I'd spend 40 years. What we got to do, the things I got to see, I got to work with presidents. And, you know, if somebody said when I was going into West Point, would you get to do it? I was only going to stay five years. That's what I told my wife. Just five years. Trust me. <laughs> we have 16 grandchildren now, so it's a uh, trust is gone. So I do think, um, well, that's good. I have a, yes. okay, so, yep. Takali, did you ever do your President Bush imitation for him? <laughs> <laughs> actually, I know his brother too, yes. And I actually, uh, he was really good to me. And uh, I, I did it in Dana Perino was in the audience who was his press secretary, she, she thought it was so, it's actually, you know, a lot of people think I'm going to make fun of him. I had the greatest respect for President Bush of any individual I've ever met, for what he did and the way he did it. People thought he was dumb. He was one of the smartest people I've met. He knew how to work a room. He knew how to drive into questions. He knew how to let his people do the job, but he was always there to ask the right question. And so I actually used that imitation to get them set up for the greatest leadership that I'd seen in government. So I thought that much of him. So um, actually, I'm trying to get that into a golf match with him, so just so you know. 
A good leadership versus debate. How do you think we mend the U.S. standing in the world and the dreadful departure from Afghanistan? Two parts to this question. How do we fix the part politics of today? Washington is broke. I think we see that. And it's worse than it's ever been. It's so polarized that getting something done in Congress is almost, it's a shame. And I think when you read the papers, the Federalist Papers, look at what they were able to do and look at where we are today. How do we fix that? I think that's leadership. So you, you bring it out, it's leadership. How do we get the leadership back in the country? How do we take out all the false facts and stuff on both sides and get some real leaders in there? And we have some great people in this country and I hope they'll step up in the next election. I think that's what we need. With respect to Afghanistan, I don't know the answer to that. I think that's one where you all in this school should debate what should we have done and why. And I'll tell you, that's a tough question. That's a really tough question. I do think there should have been more discussion with more of our allies and a longer look at that. And I think we should have planned it more. I think it should have been over to the Defense Department to plan it versus a political decision. I don't know what the right answer is on withdrawing or not. Every Chinese leader since Mao has called for Taiwan to be part of the motherland. What makes Xi's threat different from predecessors? When Xi took over in 2012, and there's some great timelines when you look at what he's done, he first said, we were humiliated in World War II, that'll never happen again, so they're building up their military. He said in uh, 2013, 2014, wiping out all that were against him as part of a get rid of the bad guys, but it's really get rid of who, not who, because that's a different Chinese person, <laughs> but get rid of the other, that's a, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll go slower on the jokes. Um, but get rid of all that oppose him. And it's interesting that his name is now in the Constitution with Mao, the first leader since Mao to do that. And he is the one that said he wants to bring Taiwan back. And you've seen his statements on it. And I believe he's going to use his time there to make that happen. Can I give us our last question? Last question. Now that you have a foot firmly planted in the private sector, firmly and profitably planted in the private sector, given your vast government experience in which you're still uh, doing some work on behalf of the United States government, how does the U.S. address the intellectual drain to China through businesses working with China rather than with the U.S. government vis-a-vis -vis the Google, Project Maven, et cetera? And as a country, do, as a free country, what can we do legally to prevent these things. Yeah, <laughs> that's an easy question. <laughs> so <clears throat> first and foremost, the theft of intellectual property by China is the greatest transfer of wealth in history, period. They are stealing our future, our children's future and our grandchildren's future. When they come up with a F-35 that looks just like ours, that's not a coincidence. They stole it. And that hurts our future. 
So step one, we've got to stop that. We've got to fix, we've got to fix our cybersecurity. And the second part is I think we've got, to, we've got to figure out a way to get our companies back here. Now, interestingly, I think that's happening. I talked to some seniors at Google, one of them who happens to be a friend of mine, after the Maven things, and they admit that was a mistake. That should never happen. In my opinion, I cannot see any reason that an American corporation wouldn't help our military do their job better. To do anything less is wrong, period. Thank you, Keith. That was outstanding. Thank you for your service to our country.